I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in T.O., a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. On today's episode, you'll find out more about the Metrolink's Eglinton LRT update that could have been an email. Nah, it could have been a line in your notes app, but it matters and you'll hear why. Also, have you heard of Meanwhile Use? There are big plans slated for Toronto's Hangar District or Downsview, but that's going to take some time. So you'll find out what they're doing with this massive chunk of land in the meanwhile. And I think you'll like it. Plus, you'll learn more about the Beaver, one of Canada's top 10 engineering accomplishments of the 20th century, which was built on site at the Bombardier Aerospace at Downsview Airport. That's all coming up on Today in T.O. I have no words for what's going on with Metrolinks and the Eglinton Crosstown LRT. Okay, fine. I have a lot of words. Absurd, frustrating, disappointing, infuriating, especially because I've seen an entire block with family-run businesses and multi-unit rentals wiped out where I live for construction of another ambitious transit project, the Ontario Line. So it's kind of unnerving when these projects that are desperately needed come in like a bull in a china shop, and then hang around for a decade. And when you're like, hey, bull, when do you plan on leaving? And do you mind cleaning up all this broken glass? The bull's like, ah, and what glass? And maybe I'm being a tad dramatic, but whatever, so are they. So when it comes to the Eglinton Crosstown LRT, a 25-stop, 19-kilometer light rail transit line, it's got a real case of the Sposedas. As in, it was supposed to cost $9.1 billion. That was the number when the contract was first awarded in 2013, and it was supposed to be done around this time last year. Prior to that, Metrolinx had announced completion dates of 2020 and 2021. It's still not ready. And the project has so far cost $12.56 billion. Now, the recent update was that there is no update. Here's Phil Verster, the chief executive of Metrolinx. I have to tell you that I had every intention to predict an opening date or series or range of possible opening dates for the Eglinton Crosstown with you today. But I've decided against doing so based on the fact The CDS is finding and rectifying issues on a week-by-week basis and that this affects the opening date significantly. Now, any prediction of an opening date at this stage of the project will just be an estimate. And I'm not comfortable giving that to you as an estimate. When I give you a date, it must be something that I believe in. We're not there yet. And it won't give anyone any certainty if we gave you any date today. He's not wrong about that. And I guess the silver lining is that he's learned a lesson to stop giving us random dates. But dude, you're not a fortune teller. This isn't a crystal ball scenario. You're building transit. 
And there's been a history of covertness and overreach here that is bordering on inexcusable, in my opinion. According to Verster, construction of the LRT is around 97% complete, though some work still needs to be done, mostly at Eglinton Station. And back to the Ontario line. This is another ambitious project, as you heard, that's already breaking hearts and promises. As of November 2022, the estimated cost for the 15.6-kilometer line was between $17 and $19 billion, which is a massive range. It's estimated to be completed in 2031. However, the original cost and timeline was $10.9 billion, with completion by 2027. I think John Kiru, executive director of the Toronto Association of Business Improvement Areas, said it best. He says hundreds of businesses have been forced to close over the course of the Eglinton LRT construction period. And here's how he describes the feeling of dealing with all of it. We're starting to feel a little bit like mushrooms. Keep them in the dark and feed them a little bit of bullshit every so often. (laughs) On the way from one big project to another, Downsview is gearing up to be a city within a city. But that's going to take some time. So there's this thing called Meanwhile Use, and you'll learn how it's transforming the space to create a sense of place. That's coming up after this. Have you ever heard of the term meanwhile use? Now, an easy example of this in the city of Toronto would be Stacked Market at Front and Bathurst. This is a reimagined public space with 120 shipping containers across 100,000 square feet of formerly derelict land in the King West neighborhood. And there are shops, a brewery, gardens, and it's a fantastic event space with gorgeous views of the city. Now, let's head north. How familiar are you with what's going on at the Downsview Airport? Now, before this, when I thought of Downsview, I thought of the transit station and also the big park next to it. And really, I'd only been to this park for events ending in fest throughout the years. But there's way more to this area than meets the eye. South of the park is a massive swath of land where Bombardier makes planes for now. But Northcrest Development's has massive plans for the site, and they're using parts of it to engage folks, create place and purpose. They're going to transform this parcel of land into a city within a city, but that's a big job, and it's going to take time, about 30 years. And so they're implementing something called Meanwhile Use. For more on that, I spoke to Mitchell Marcus. He's executive director of site activation and programming at Northcrest. For the last many decades, there has been a private airport right in the middle of North York, uh, hidden behind barbed wire fences. And it is a massive, massive piece of land. It's 370 acres. Um, It's pretty difficult for people to wrap their heads around just how large that is. But, you know, just to give you sort of some point of reference, the runway itself is over two kilometers long. You could put Bloor all the way down to Front Street on the runway. So we're talking an area that's sort of like you know, a good chunk of the downtown core right in the middle of North York that hasn't been accessible for many years. So uh, Northcrest is responsible for, you know, it's going to take 30 years to do it, but it will become a mini sort of city within a city. 
and it will be home to about 120,000 people when it's all finished in about 30 years. So with that as background, to answer your question, um, I have a really interesting role here because of the longevity of this project, because of the size of this land. This is really different than other developments where, you know, a developer comes in, they've got a They've got a block, they build some condos, and they're gone a few years later. This is a long-term relationship with the North York and Downsview area. It's a long-term relationship with the city of Toronto. Um, and it's really a transformative project at a city scale, at a mini-city scale. And so, lucky for me, one of the areas that we get to investigate because of that scale and, and time horizon is the role of culture. And, uh, you know, what role does arts and culture and recreation and festivals and events and food and beverage, what role does that have in the planning of a little mini city? And in this particular case, because so much of the land is going to sit empty for so long, it gives us the chance to um, explore meanwhile uses of this land at scale, at a scale that really isn't, isn't done typically. So, uh, you know, in terms of meanwhile uses, the question is rather than leaving the fences up and having the, this land be inaccessible for another couple decades till this project is done, can we get ahead of the curve on some of that culture building if we open the fences up and we start with some of those, you know, arts, culture, recreation, food, beverage, events, festivals, all that kind of stuff, can we actually create the spirit of this place before development happens and then integrate that into the DNA of it so that when it opens, people aren't like, oh, what's this new mini city that's just descended in the middle of Toronto? It feels like it was always meant to be there. It feels like it's arrived at a natural destination because of the city's interim relationship to this land. So um, that's a long answer uh, to say, you know, what this, uh, what this role is um, and this mix of how do we use an abandoned airport to be a part of the social fabric of the city over the next um, you know, several years in some areas, decades? And then how do we take all the learning from that and integrate it into the place that will be there for generations afterwards? This city within a city will house folks up to 120,000 people. So there will be some condos, but more lower rise buildings. It will create jobs as well and promote innovation. And there's also an emphasis on sustainability and play. So shopping, retail, dining, parks, and public spaces. So that's a lot of space, a lot of people, and a lot of infrastructure. Hence the lot of time it will take to build it all. So I wanted to know if Mitchell found that daunting or exciting. And what does that have to do with eating an elephant? Yeah, I remember when I started, one of my colleagues described it as like, working here is like, you know, trying to figure out how to eat an elephant. Like, it's like, where do you what? Like, where do you start? And so it's totally daunting and it's totally exciting. I've always been drawn to kind of blank canvas, um, you know, anything's possible type of projects. And I think a little bit in the spirit of how to eat an elephant, you do have to just, you just start, you know, we kind of, you know, it's been a year of sort of planning out unapproached. And I, I think to sleep easy at night, I, I can't be trying to figure out if it's the, the absolute best approach there ever could be in the world, or are we missing something, or what if we started it there instead of starting here, or what if we started with this use instead of this use? At some point, we just have to jump in somewhere, and we have to, we have to learn how do things work on this site, who's, who's attending the site, what kinds of activities draw them more regularly. And so, you know, my approach 
starting, I've been here about a year and a half, so starting about a year and a half ago was just like, well, let's just start with something. Let's just start, you know, low stakes. Let's, it's still an airport, but can we just start inviting people to the site every so often for different kinds of things? And can we partner with different local groups for those things? And let's just learn. You know, that we're, it's too early. There doesn't have to be a through line. There doesn't have to be a theme. We don't have to know all the answers, but let's just kind of play and see what we can we can derive from that. And so that's been really helpful to inform the next plan, the next version of the plan. I think even in the next version of the plan, which is a little bit more, has a few more elements that are a bit more definitive and will be there for, you know, five years or 10 years or whatever. But even that, trying to design and approach it with a spirit of flexibility and nimbleness to go, we, of course, we don't know all the answers. You know, nobody, nobody's ever stepped foot on this airport. We don't know how the city wants to use this. We don't know what we, what, you know, the, the, the folks in the local community can come up with and will most want here. So similarly, let's create a framework and a plan and let's start working towards it and put in a couple of pieces, but let's do it in a way that if that's not right, or that's not working or a different idea emerges, that's more, you know, correct, let's make sure we've got the ability to make those right-hand turns. The destination has to be these eventual districts once they open. And those are not so flexible. You know, once you've built the buildings, once you've built the parks and public spaces, they don't get a facelift every two years. You can't just move a park or realize that it needed to be larger. So this is the best time to have that. You know, we will miss a major opportunity if this is too concrete. If we just said, you know, it's going to be a whatever, you know, terrible idea. It's going to be a race car track. Terrible idea, right? Like if we said that's what it is, that is all we're going to learn about this site over the next 10 or 20 years. And that might be great for a particular demographic. Maybe it, you know, is better than leaving the fences up. But I think that is, if I had to pick my key metric of success, it's have we, we as a development company and then we as a city, have we collectively agreed on what it's supposed to feel like to be here and what's the most right thing for this space? And then have we picked up that ball as developers and put it into the permanent development plans? If that's what happens, then I think the Long Meanwhile project has been a great success. And so daunting, yes, exciting extremely and hopefully a very, very informative process to get us collectively to, uh, you know, the finish line we're all supposed to be at, that we don't know what it is yet. So what's there right now? Well, there's still an airport. Bombardier is still building jets, and then they send them off to Montreal. But in about a year's time, this work will move to Pearson. And so in the meanwhile, there are windows of opportunity to bring people to engage with the space. And one of those windows is now open. There's a brand new installation called Tee Up Downs View, and how this came about was Mitchell contacted his pals at Steps, which is an arts not-for-profit in the city, and they said, "You know, I've always dreamed of doing a, an artist-based, an artist-created mini golf course, and you know, there was a just it sort of pinged right away. It was an immediate alignment with that idea of creative play, of how do you mix together art and recreation, and so we embarked on that project, um, whatever that is now, probably six or eight months ago." And, uh, you know, the brief that we co-created was to say, you know, let's do a nine hole. First of all, super interesting. There is no mini, there is no outdoor mini golf in Toronto. So there's an example where, you know, when I'm looking for the gaps, it's like, oh my God, that's so interesting. The minute you leave Toronto, you know, it's such a staple of kind of cottage country, but there isn't outdoor mini golf in Toronto. So there is an interesting ping. It hit the kind of creative play box. And, and I'd say the third box in terms of what makes, you know, this approach to wanting to be distinctly of the place, 
you know, mini golf, but you don't really think of it as art. You have to create a sculpture for each. It's really sculptural. You need to create a sculpture, which becomes the obstacle for the player. And so we thought, well, if we create a nine hole mini golf course, and that would give us the opportunity to commission nine different local artists to each, you know, use one of the holes as their creative canvas and to bring their own approach to it. And so that's what we did. There are, uh, you know, nine Toronto artists who've been involved. Five of them uh, either currently live or have lived in Downsview before. And they've each created, you know, taken a very different approach to the creation of of their mini golf hole. Um, and, you know, I think is a fun way to get to come and experience this piece of Toronto that most people haven't seen and through whether you want to call it kind of playable art or artistic, you know, play, you get in a hands-on way to spend, you know, an hour on the site and get to know nine different artists and their sensibilities. Um, and, you know, the, the cherry on the cake of all of it was that turns out there's an international mini golf day on September 21st. So it gave us a good destination to work towards and we were able to open on, on international mini golf day. So, uh, so yeah, it's been lovely. It's been, a, it's been great. And, much like I think this is the seventh thing like this we've done on the site, and each one of them has totally. We, it, they're they're free. I should say that's most important. They're free, but they um, we we do take registration just to make sure we're controlling the ebb and flow. And you know they've all sold out. We, we're madly trying to add more more spots on this. And you know there's some lovely fall food for free when you come, and some music, and some golf, and then some lawn games and. Um, uh, this is in a small parking lot, and I think it really transforms uh, a parking lot in such a central location, but that nobody knows exists, and it transforms it into something that people can come and spend some time and be a part of, you know, helping to imagine what the future of all this can be. Since this is a very family-friendly kind of activity, I wondered what it's like seeing folks actually come to your place and interact with these spaces that you've essentially created for them. For me, the best is seeing kids, you know, kids from all backgrounds, all cultural backgrounds, all all parts of the city, kind of just being there and being excited to be outdoors and playing and, you know, and then grabbing some free food. But the, you know, the reason for me that is so exciting is because, you know, back to where we started this conversation, the time horizon of this is so long. And that means that actually that's who this project is really for, right? Is the kids who are six and seven years old today, probably are going to be buying, you know, when they're going to be looking for a house in 20 years, and this might be a place and, you know, just sort of imagining that, that it doesn't become a like, oh, you know, where's Downsview and would we ever want to live there? But I hope that starting from the time they were six or seven, and I hope now continuing over the next many years, they'll grow up with this space that they'll say, you know, I was part of that. I was there and I played mini golf. I remember being there for mini golf with my parents. And now, you know, I'm living on that same spot. I, I just find that really powerful and I find it um, really beautiful just to, and, and really helps to drive home the responsibility of all this to realize we're, we're trying to do something that's going to have impact on, on generations to come. And so we need to do it right and we need to do it together. And as somebody who believes very much in the power of creativity and the power of art, um, to be transformative. I love so very much that we can give people their first experience with a place that may have um, great long-term meaning to them. The fact that we can give them that first experience with creativity. I, I, I hope after I'm long retired and you know living in the old folks' home at Downsview, that that spirit of creativity will, will carry through the foundation of this place for, for generations. We love a full circle moment. 
And if you want to check out the space, get in a quick nine and be dazzled by public art by local makers, Tee Up Downs View is running each weekend until October 15th. To register, you'll find the link in the show notes or you can search Tee Up Downs View on Eventbrite. Now, as you heard, a part of this space is currently being used by Bombardier to make planes. And one of the planes built here is actually considered to be one of Canada's top 10 engineering accomplishments of the 20th century. So you'd think that this thing has got to have a bitchin' name. It's called the Beaver. Okay. With more on that, here's producer Glenn Bergonier. And this might not have been the only unique plane to come out of de Havilland's Downsview plant, such as, you know, the Mosquito or the Tiger Moth or the Twin Otter. But none of those or any of the others to come out of this plant even comes close to the love, versatility and longevity that is embodied when you talk about one of the greatest bush planes ever built, the DHC-2 Beaver. We're just going to call it the Beaver from now on, though. The Beaver was first created after the end of World War II when de Havilland was attempting to transition from wartime to peacetime production. The idea was to create a powerful, versatile plane that could be used by civilian pilots and industries, and the idea of a new bush plane was especially alluring given that much of Canada was difficult to reach via ground or traditional planes. And so, by 1947, the first Beaver prototype took off from Downsview plant to great success. And just one year later, 25 planes were purchased by the Ontario Department of Land and Forests, which is now known as the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry. The plane was especially successful due to its versatility when it came to takeoff and landing, being able to take off from runways, waters, and snow. But the big win for the Beaver came in 1951 when the US military was looking to replace its aging fleet of single-engine Cessnas. And looking north, discovered the Beaver. The U.S. was so impressed that they ordered a whopping 970 planes that were used through the Korean and Vietnam Wars, mainly serving in rescue operations, aerial photography, and cargo transport. Once again, proving the unequivocal versatility offered by this Canadian wonder. By 1953, the plane had easily become one of the most popular bush planes in the world with a Globe and Mail article from that time citing that the Beaver had become a familiar sight on all six continents. But, like all good things, production for this plane had to come to an end, which happened in 1967. But that does not mean these planes were immediately taken out of circulation and sent to a graveyard. In fact, to this very day, the DHC-2 Beaver is considered by many to be one of the most beloved aircrafts ever built in the history of aviation. Hundreds are still being used all over the world and is still considered a favorite from private collectors like Harrison Ford to charter companies and governments and everything in between. And to prove just how beautiful and beloved this plane remains, back in 1948, it would cost about 20 grand to get a new Beaver. Whereas now, it actually costs upward of about $500,000, proving that the demand for one of the top 10 engineering accomplishments of the 20th century is still high. And confirming, once again, that the term made in Canada can actually be synonymous with global success. Forget beaver. I can't stop thinking about eating elephants. I mean, I never would. But where do you even start? 
This podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. I'm Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Chris Dunner and Andrew Dernford are advisors to the show. We'll be back with a brand new episode next Wednesday that will explore the well. Not the one Timmy fell down, another one, a better one. Till then, have a great week, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>